Welcome to Bowties in Business, where a fashionable nerd and knowledge meet. Regardless of whether your career is just starting, steady, or stalling, join me and a collection of business and thought leaders who are experts in their field as they share their decades of first-hand real-world experience from the ground floor to the executive suite and every corner of the business world. Thanks for listening today. We appreciate you being here and taking the time. I'm your host, Tim Kubiak. And our topic today is things to consider when building a services business. As always, we've added helpful links in the show notes so you can find the materials we've talked about. And there's always bonus written content available below the audio section of this podcast on timkubiak.com. Like what you hear? Please subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify, along with a host of other podcast applications. Want more information? You can find us at Bowties and Business on Instagram and the Facebook page, and Bowties and Biz, B-I-Z, on Twitter. You can find me personally at timkubiak.com or at timkubiak on Twitter and also on Instagram. With that, I'd like to introduce my guest today. It's my friend Mike O'Neill. Mike has led sales and services organizations that have worked both domestically and internationally throughout his career. He has t- nearly 20 years of dedicated services business expertise and a variety of leadership roles. He's also led product and sales organizations. It's a great perspective. His experience ranges from international financial institutions to supporting small businesses. Additionally, he's taught at the university level throughout his corporate career to help the next generation of people become better business people. Mike, thanks for being here today. Appreciate it, Tim. Thank you for having me. Ah, you know, you're a hell of a nice guy. So happy to have you. I really appreciate you taking the time. So, you know, jumping into the questions today, more and more you hear businesses in every segment. You hear it in technology, you hear it in air conditioning, you hear it in, you know, people that run car dealerships, building a services business. So let's just start with some basic things. Our audience is a mix of senior executives to people that are newer in business, maybe even some people that are still in university and studying. So let's start with the basics. Let's assume a company wants to diversify their product sales by adding services to their offers. What are some of the top things their leadership needs to be thinking about? That's a good question, Tim. So from my, from my perspective, the first thing you want to think about is as a business, what is driving you to start to think about adding a services business? Is this something that you're doing for your own company for maybe you want to increase profitability for your deals? Or is this something that's being driven by your customers where your customers are asking you for services that you're not delivering today? That would be one of the first things I would think about. You need to decide why you want to get into this business. The second thing you have to do, I really believe, is understand a financial model. What is going to be your cost of entry into the services business? It does cost to build a services uh, process and a services organization. So what is your break-even point? At what point do you say, okay, I need to be profitable by X number of months from when I start? And then what kind of profit margin are you looking for this? Depending on the type of service that you decide to offer, is it something that's readily available in the marketplace today? Or is it something that's going to be unique to you and your business that will allow you to have a higher profit margin? That would be the second thing I would think about. The third is, what is your timeline to go live? Meaning, how long is it going to take you from when you've got this services idea kind of firmly in a plan to actually go live with real customers? It could be a nine to 12 month effort 
to build your services business and have it ready for production. Will the marketplace look the same nine to 12 months from now? Is the opportunity that you see today gonna be there in nine to 12 months? If not, maybe you ought to rethink your services idea. Those are the three things, Tim, that I would say every business should take a look at before investing a single dollar into a services business. Go a little deeper on a couple of those. So let's start with where the market's going, right? The world's crazy. New offers come out all the time. If you're looking at building something, you know, what's, what's thoughts on how do you start to build that roadmap for services? Manufacturers obviously publish a product roadmap. How would you align a services organization to an upcoming product roadmap, maybe? Good question. Um, I guess the first thing that comes to my mind is you've got to take a look at the product roadmap and look at the complexity of that, that product. So when the product comes out, what is the manufacturer going to offer in terms of support for that product, whether it be installation support, uh, whether it be customer service, break-fix support, all those kinds of things. Um, then you have to look at your own capabilities and say, okay, if I may have some skills in-house already that can help me get this off the ground faster, but if not, where do I want to play? Do I want to start on the low end, which means I'll maybe start just doing some installation type services, which I can get into faster than break fix and maybe require less engineering talent and resources and less skills. As the product starts to, um, as you start to ramp up your services into more break fix and customer support, then you need to invest in infrastructure. You have to have a customer support center that's open. You've got to decide, is it going to be Monday through Friday, five days a week, um, eight hours a day, or are you going to be 24 seven? Those kinds of questions. Uh, there's costs associated with each of those. And then you have to ask yourself, what is it going to take to get the skills to provide these services? Um, and is the outcome, the desired outcome, going to be able to be reached by me in the time frame I need it? So, Mike, as businesses evolve, there's almost always downward price pressure on any hardware or software or physical goods someone's selling, right? E-commerce marketplaces have done that, but we, we've also seen just the ability to buy from a broader variety of vendors do that across even the business to business marketplace. Do you see those same concerns with services offerings in a business-to-business -business sales environment? They can be, Tim. And the reason I say they can be is as a, as a service becomes more and more prevalent, so more and more vendors, maybe evaluated resellers or distributors are offering that same service, that service becomes more of a commodity. Oftentimes, there are lower-skilled services, and the more people that do it, you're going to see some downward pricing pressure you will not see that downward pricing pressure on those complex service offerings that not many people are able to A, afford to jump into or find the skills to jump into. So what I've seen in the industry is there's a segmentation taking place. A lot of companies are looking to divest themselves of the kind of the commodity services that everybody's doing and just focus on the high-end service. So they still want to be able to offer them through their company but at the same time, they want to outsource those to someone who can do it better, faster, cheaper with a broader range than they're able to do themselves and use their engineering talent to focus on the higher end, higher profit margin services. The advantage here is if you're only using your own team, you have a certain reach. It could be 
but local, could be regional, could be nationwide or even global. If you start to partner and you pick good partners and it's a win-win for both, your reach can extend well beyond what your local capabilities are. So you talk about finding those high-end services, right? I mean, basic business advice is find a niche market and exploit it. That's an opportunity within a services offering by itself then? Yes, it is. So for instance, you take a look at some, some vendors. And let's just talk technology for a second. You have vendors like Cisco and Palo Alto and Firemon. Those vendors have some very complex product sets. They can't meet the demand uh, in terms of services for their own products. So they need people to work with them. There's a whole certification process, uh, training process that, goes, that they go through, lab equipment. All these things are being required by you as a, a person who wants to provide that service. But the margins are high, and that's a niche market that not everybody can be in. Uh, they limit the number of partners they have because they want to maintain their brand reputation and they want to maintain high quality service. So yes, there is a market segment that has, is very complex services and can generate high margins, but you have to be able to invest in the resources and the training and certifications to be able to deliver. And then quite frankly, the vendor's gonna challenge you every single year to improve. You're gonna to have to hit targets of customer satisfaction and problem of motion in order to stay uh, so just kind of following up on that right that's something that i i hadn't thought about right so when you're looking at building and we're assuming you're reselling somebody's product whether it's technology or home goods or whatever that requires service the manufacturers the oems of that product probably have their own requirements for you to be a services partner do you approach their organization when you start your modeling and your business considerations to make sure you're aligning with that? What's a, what's a best practice there? Yes. Uh, you can't just decide to, to provide service for someone's, from a manufacturer's product without their permission. So if you want to get into the services business, you need to build those relationships first. So you have a partnership with that manufacturer. And then that manufacturer is going to tell you, this is what you need to do. This is the process you need to follow. This is the skill set you need to have. These are the number of engineers you need or, or service people you need. And here's what the training they have to have and certifications you have to have. That's your process. That's your roadmap to being able to deliver that. And oftentimes they will hold classes uh, or training sessions for your people that you have to send them to. And based on when those training sessions take place, that's how quickly you can get into the market. You have to wait six months for a training session. You're not going to be able to jump in for six months. So, so just from a consumer perspective, stepping away just really from building a services business, when you're looking, you're out there looking for someone to service something for you, that's the designation you see when people say authorized partner, authorized this, that they're talking about their medallion level or their quality level. That's driven by their marquee names that they're representing in the marketplace. In, in a way, there's a set of criteria there and it's meant consumer protection may be too strong of a word, but it is meant as brand reputation protection from the manufacturers. So you know you should have a quality outcome. Fair assessment? Fair assessment. Okay. There's another component of that though. Okay. And that component is the customer satisfaction. So you can say, I've met all the criteria for this manufacturer to be able to deliver services on their behalf for my benefit, 
But if you don't deliver the quality of the service, you won't be delivering that service very long because in the end, you're representing that manufacturer. Even though you're doing that services under your own brand, you're representing that manufacturer. If they start to get complaints about the quality of the service that they're both, whether it be installation services or break fix services around their products, they're gonna come looking to see why you're not delivering the level of service that they've come to expect and deliver for their own brand. And, and while you're talking about that, there are dealer networks essentially, right? So if you have that service moniker, there's a chance that if you have a client that's multi-region outside of your geographic footprint, that you could find someone to partner with maybe and yes. deliver those services? Yes, that's exactly right, Tim. Um, and, that, and that's the advantage of partnerships in the services business. If you can't deliver it yourself, if you find the right partners, and it's always on a case-by-case -case basis because not everybody uh, who you, every customer you deal with is going to maybe have an office or business in, a, in the same location. So you may need multiple partners across the region that you're supporting in order to be able to provide those services. But if you can build those partnerships, it saves you investing in that for a maybe potentially one-time sale. You can still deliver quality service. You can still win the sale for yourself. And um, you have a partner that you can rely on for future business. Nice. That, that certainly, you know, takes some of the pressure off of the bottom line and maybe even the ramp time in some cases. But the key to the point that you made a minute ago is they're going to have to have that same certification. You know, if they, they're, you can't just hire someone, if you're certified, you just can't go out and hire someone who's not certified to do that work for you, or that could cost you your relationship with the manufacturer. Because it puts the quality of the delivered service at risk, right? That's correct. Okay. Yep. In terms of services sales, are they a one and done kind of big hit, you know, round the bases, everybody celebrates type of sale, or do they actually give you an opportunity to create a recurring revenue stream? You can get both, Tim. There are two types of services. There's the initial installation service, where you do the planning and then the installation. And oftentimes, if there's something that has to come out, the removal of the product that's in there today. And then there's the ongoing support and break fix. So the initial installation services is typically a one and done. Well, let me give you an example. You're a hospital and you're going to replace your phone system with a new phone system. Uh, there's a lot of planning that takes place. You have some upfront work done on the type of equipment you want to put in, what the network's going to look like, all that sort of thing. And then that plan gets executed typically over a, a time frame when the system can be taken down or partially taken down. And that's a set of engineers that goes in there and they do that work. That's specifically all they do. The racking, the stacking, the cabling, and then the testing. Once that work is done, then a more senior engineer will actually complete that install typically um, over the internet. They'll sign into that, that uh, system. They'll do all the software changes, make sure everything's working, do all the testing, that sort of thing. And that's the installation. That's a one and done. Okay. Okay. And it can be a, a, as simple as, you know, a, a 10 phones to 10,000 phones, depending on the size and the geography. The second set of services is the ongoing recurring maintenance, where you sign a contract, the customer signs a contract with you to provide support now for that that um, installation that you just did, that phone system. So, and it's a kind of a two-way street. 
if you, without that support contract, if a phone breaks, you call the manufacturer and the manufacturer will ship you out a new phone typically, and then you have to install it yourself. With a support contract, which is an ongoing revenue stream for the vendor, they call your customer support helpline. They tell you what the problem is. You open the ticket. If it's a software thing, you can solve it right there on the, on the phone uh, at level one or level two. If it's a hardware thing and you have to dispatch someone out to, to the site, they'll go out and they'll fix it there. And that's all covered under your maintenance contract. And those are usually set up on a one to three year basis so that you have an ongoing, you get a, a, a firm price for three years. Then at the end of that three years, it's up to you as the vendor to make sure you renew that and keep your revenue stream going. So you can have a one and done, or you can have a ongoing revenue stream. The ideal is to do both. That's where you make the most money. Yeah. So, so just a couple stories I'll relate. I don't know if you know. So at one point, one of the global telcos, it was a client of mine. We actually took over the recurring maintenance business. They were selling the OEM's own support, which is also another services revenue stream for people out there. Sometimes, you know, the manufacturers have their own levels of support that you can sell and you maybe sell them out of your home market, if you will. And it was literally a $70 million a year recurring revenue base right? That they were just selling the maintenance on and cashing the checks for years. And I had been part of building a complete outsourced organization to, you know, essentially do all of their maintenance renewals and keep that money ticking in. It was, it was a fantastic business. The other one is actually, I was standing at the local grocery store, picking up allergy meds from the pharmacy last Friday. And this guy comes in, right? Six foot tall, bright blue eyes, ponytail, black on black, backpack, satchel and a fanny pack literally all matte black and you see the pharmacist like insanely waving at him to like get in here get in here get in here and he was just in the maintenance support guy for the pharmacy printers and it was a business i'd never thought about right there there's a niche market this company just does printers and pharmacies they obviously knew the guy he'd been in before and they couldn't get him in there fast enough to get their business going so Service, it's funny, parts of businesses you don't even think about are so dependent on their service and their customer experience. And Absolutely. literally, they were backed up for hours because their printer went down. Sure. And, and the key is you have to have the full service. So it starts with you having a support center that can receive that call and understand that call, open a ticket, get it resolved, and then come back to the customer to close it out with then follow up with a customer sat survey. That's the full scope of services that every um, customer wants from their vendor. And if you can do that, you can maintain that customer for, for life and you can generate some significant revenue and profit margin from those relationships while providing excellent service. And it probably sets you up for the next migration. So that's, I mean, that's a great way to stay in front of a customer. Absolutely. And they're certainly, if you have one of those good customers, they're a great reference for their next sale. So talking about keeping customers happy and, and, you know, making sure you have the right pieces in place. If people aren't already in the services business, odds are most businesses carry insurance, but if you're changing from just a product sales company, you start sending people on site to visit customers, you know, does that require additional licenses or insurance typically? It requires uh, insurance. So you have to insure both your employee or your contractor, if you're using the contractor, against liability for them. Now, if you're using a contractor, your contractor will, will have insurance for liability for their own people. But if it's your employee, 
you're providing insurance on that person because they're going on site and potentially could be harmed for some reason, you know, working with electricity and other, um, uh, other equipment. Um, but you also have to have insurance to protect yourself against a, a catastrophic failure. Uh, an example from my past is we were doing a, a full installation of a new phone system in the hospital and our engineer made a mistake and took their entire phone system down. So they had no working phones in the hospital or any of their administrative offices for a day. That's a major disaster. Now, fortunately, the hospital didn't sue, but that, that's where you need the insurance in case you cause financial harm uh, to them or you cause harm, physical harm to some of their uh, employees or patients in the course of doing your work. So extra insurance is required. And you talk about going on site. If you're building that business, uh, odds are, you know, what your employees look like, the skill sets they have is different. So when it comes to recruiting talent in any business, it's really important. But what are different considerations you probably have or should have? You should start to look at building a services business. So um, in a product business, depending on the complexity of the product business, most are going to have some product salesperson who has product knowledge and knowledge of the company and so on and so forth. Oftentimes there's what's known as a systems engineer or a product engineer that goes with them. They know the feeds and speeds of the product. They know, you know, the electrical requirements, they know the space issues associated with it and so on and so forth. That's one part of the sale, but that's not the knowledge that's required to actually get it installed and working. So those engineers are a different skill set. They are typically um, folks that like the hands-on work. They like problem solving. They like to learn. They like to be challenged. Uh, they're very technical type people. You're, you're looking for a different kind of person, someone that wants to, get, that wants to continue learning. If you're going to hire them, you're, you're typically going to pay uh, a little bit more for those engineers, depending on their skill set and whether it's a kind of a commodity service or a high-end service. Uh, some engineers on the high-end services are very difficult to find, Tim. And so uh, it's, the, it's a challenge to build that services, that services business if you're on, uh, looking for those types of engineers. And I'll give you a quick example of that. Right now, Cisco is so prevalent in the marketplace, there's a lot of Cisco engineers that you can find. Palo Alto and Firemon, some of those new security companies or security companies that are out there with high, very complex products, those are, our engineers aren't as easy to find and to recruit. So it's something you have to think about. They have a higher level of product knowledge. They are looking to grow their skills. They want to get certified and their value is in their technical acumen. So if you're going to be starting your own services business and you're going to be bringing these people on, you want to make sure you're investing a lot of money in them between training and certification, labs, equipment, and that sort of thing. You want to be able to maintain and retain these people. That means you have to allow them to get training each year. You have to keep them happy. So actually, I'm going to ask you a question from a different perspective. I know one of my regular listeners is a gentleman named DJ, and he is actually in the process of going through university, and he just got a CCNA. He's working towards a CCIE. Right. So if you were looking at it from not the business owner or the leader's perspective, but that of a new practitioner that's going to go into that services side of the business as the employee that would be recruited, 
what are some things they might be able to do to make themselves more attractive to potential employees? And what are some things that maybe they should ask for in their compensation plan to make sure that they keep getting development and get that hands-on skill? So you mentioned that they're getting two certifications. That's in engineering. That's a big deal. Uh, an engineer that can come in as a, even as a college student who's gone out and gotten their certifications, they're a leg up ahead of most who are coming into the services business because most want to get, get their certification once they get hired on. So if you've taken the time and invested in uh, getting some certifications, that's a plus for you. The second thing is it's a plus for you if you can do an internship where you actually get hands-on experience working in a lab, working even if it's only shadowing, but working with real customers, watching how the engineer is doing work. That's a great way to build some skills that you bring. So all these things mean that your training time and your time to productivity gets shortened. Those are things that a, an engineer should look at. In terms of their own compensation package, uh, you know, there's, there's kind of standard rule of thumb offerings depending on your skill level that uh, salary offerings that you're going to get from most businesses. Um, what, can, what you can add to that is things like, um, I would like 40 hours a year in training. I would like to be able to attend technical conferences, at least one technical conference a year, where you're going to rub elbows with other engineers like yourself and, and do that, that, um, that learning that takes place when you, when you mix engineers. Those are kinds of things that you can add to your, or maybe it's the, the type of lab equipment that you will need to provide support to make sure you're staying current with the lab equipment and you're not working and trying to solve a customer's problem with 10-year-old equipment. Those are things you can ask for in terms of what will help you be more productive and help you do your job best. Yeah, that's great advice. So while we're talking about things that can help you do your job better, let's shift back towards you know the business owner, the business leader that's looking at this. I've run a ton of product organizations. And Mike, you're one of the guys that actually helped me build services into my business when we were in distribution together, right? And I became a major customer of your services. My customer said it fit really well. You know, but what are some key metrics that a services leader or a business leader should be looking at to ensure that you know they have customer satisfaction? You talked about manufacturer requirements and whatnot earlier. So if I'm just starting from scratch and I'm starting to put this together, what are things I should be monitoring and measuring to ensure that I'm delivering the quality I think I need to? Okay. I want to break it down for you, Tim, between the two different services, the one and done service and okay. then the ongoing service, the ongoing um, revenue services. So from a, from a one and done, think of it as installation services. Uh, you want uh, a good KPI is, did I do the install on time and did I do it correctly? The last thing you want is to tell your customer you'll be done on Friday and it, you go into the following week or the next Friday before you're finished and then you've got problems that either came from a, a bad installation or some poor planning on your part. You didn't know if you didn't have a certain like, kind of electricity or something like that. So on time installation, correct installation, minimal or no disruption. In doing an install, you don't want to disrupt current business. Okay, you, you don't want to cause any problems for them. You have a backup plan. If something goes wrong, you're going to be able to restore that person to the first level. Now, that's really not a KPI. It's more just good planning, good thinking. You, you stayed on budget. 
didn't cost him more. If anything, maybe you've done it better than you anticipated and you saved him some money. Good planning, so there's no surprises. Um, those are the kinds of things that, that make a customer come back to you for another one-time install. From a vendor perspective, just one thing they should be thinking about if they go into that, that uh, installation business is what percent of our, what percent wins did we get versus quotes that we made? Because you want to see that I'm not, you know, some businesses, they take every opportunity, they invest the cost of sales and they put out a proposal, but they really don't have a good chance of winning that. So what is your win percentage versus the number of quotes? And maybe you need to be more selective. That's from a vendor standpoint, not from a customer set. And then measure, measure the customer satisfaction. Send your customer a survey at the end of it to see what you did well and what you didn't do well. And then you can use that as a marketing material. You can publish your customer set numbers if they're high. And if they're not, you can figure out how to fix that. If you're talking about recurring revenue services, <clears throat> typically you're going to have to have some kind of a customer support center where you take these calls, open these tickets, and then assign the work. So when you're, whenever you're dealing with a customer support center, you want to measure your hold time or your wait time. The last thing a customer wants to do is sit on hold. So you want to measure that and set some targets for yourself. And all these examples I'm going to give you, set some targets that you publish that, you know, we, we will try to have your call answered in less than five minutes. That's our target. Then how do you measure against that? Second thing is hangups and disconnects. Somebody gets tired, even if it's within your window that you say your hold time is going to be less than five minutes, hangups and disconnects are always a lost customer. So how many of those are you getting? And if you're getting a lot of those, maybe you need to shorten your window or maybe you need to add more people. What is your first call resolution? This is very important because you want to be able to try to solve the customer's problem on the first call. And depending on what industry you're in, certain manufacturers require you to hit a certain number of first call resolutions in order to stay as a service representative for them. What's your total time to resolution? Now, sometimes there are really complex problems that require level two and level three support, and they do take some time. But in general, you want to minimize your total time to resolution. So you need to take a look at that in terms of your simple, your medium, and your complex uh, problems that you're trying to solve for your customers. And then customer sat scores. You can do your own internal customer satisfaction surveys, but sometimes it's nice, and some manufacturers actually do that, they will send out their own customer sat survey to your customers and then give you the feedback. It's always nice to have uh, multiple sources of getting customer feedback. That's how you can make improvements and maintain your customer base. And again, back to you as the vendor, what percent of wins are you getting versus quotes that you're putting out there? That's important to take a look at. And the second one is, if you're in this recurring revenue stream, what are your renewal rates? Once that one to three year contract is over, how many customers are re-signing with you rather than going to someone else? Those are good measurements to help you decide, am I doing a good job for my customers and am I gonna be able to keep this customer as a lifetime customer? The, those are all great things. And, and they're, you know, it's part of building the roadmap you talked about. And I know that's something you're putting together, right? And just so everyone here knows, Mike and I are working on a program to really help people assess their services business. And it's, we're coming at it from two directions. 
you have a services business today and maybe it's underperforming or you're looking to expand it or you need to build a services business. So we'll have some more episodes here. There's gonna be a bunch of stuff on the website, including some webinars that you guys can come to. And certainly we're happy to have conversations with anyone who's interested in thinking about this in their business. Along those lines, I wanna come back to a couple of things. And one of, one of the things you said right there at the end was really about you know win rates and, and how many are you winning. Should you be winning at the same ratio you do in your hot in your product sales? So if you're winning 25% of your bids and you put it out on product XYZ, should you be having a services attached that mirrors that? Could it be different? Could it be better? What do you see as a standard? In a perfect world, Tim, you would have a services win for every product sale. Okay? okay. So that would be ideal. That says you've done the right job of explaining the product and explaining the value of, of having you do the services so it's a one-stop shop and, and your reputation allows you to make that clean. That's going to depend on a couple of things. The first one is going to be how your services are viewed in the marketplace. If you're competing against someone, you're brand new in this, you're competing against someone who's been established in this business for 15 years, their reputation is probably going to be better in the marketplace than yours. That doesn't necessarily mean their services are better, just their reputation is going to be better. Some people like to do business with a known entity. In this case, it's, if it's your customer and you're winning this business, you're going to have to be very successful right out the door. If you win that services business, you're going to have to do it right. All the things we talked about in terms of the KPIs, you're going to have to do it right and then you can, um, uh, then you can keep that customer. The second piece is how well you sell the services. We both know that selling products and selling services are two different pieces. In selling services, you're selling an intangible. You're selling the fact that you have the skills, the knowledge, the support, equipment, this whole package, that when I put this thing in for you, I can support this for you as good as anybody else can do it. That's a harder sell. And it then begs the question, who does that sale for you? Do you train your product people to do that sale or do you hire services people within your company to do that sale? I've seen both work, but I've also seen retraining product people to be services salespeople not be very effective. Particularly then, because what happens is either they don't want to learn it and, and so they don't sell it, or their compensation model is based on product and they can make their quota and their 100% goals without selling any services. Those are all considerations that have to be taken in when you're building your services business to ensure that your win ratio is close to or exactly matching your product win ratio. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of go a little further on that one just real quickly. One of the most amazing things I've ever seen is how many new sales opportunities services organizations bring back to the sales force. Have you seen that work and have you seen a good incentive program, generically speaking, that works for, you know, the guys that are out on site making the call saying, hey, by the way, and back in the old days, if we go back 25 years, we actually had a thing where if they brought in a lead, they got a ticket, it went in a thing and, and you know, LCD TVs were just new back then. So we gave by drawing LCD TVs. Didn't matter if it turned into sales, as long as it was a qualified real opportunity and a services person brought it in. Do you see programs like that still being used? Do you see things like that work? 
I've seen them work. I, I don't see them still being used. Uh, I haven't seen them in a while. I mean, at the last few, you know, I, you know, I spent a, a lot of time at IBM and IBM had some programs like that. I don't know if they still do, but the okay. other three companies I worked for after I retired from IBM, I did not see that. I will tell you this though, on-site engineers, guys are doing the installation, doing the brake fix, they're almost invisible. And I mean that in a way, a good way. They're out there, they're doing their thing, and people talk as though they don't realize that's my vendor right there. And they'll talk about the problems that they have, and they'll talk about the things that aren't working, they'll talk about this and that and the other thing. And a good engineer absorbs all that and brings that back to the sales guy as an opportunity to go out and have a discussion with the customer about this particular situation. And oftentimes the customer's gonna wonder, how did you know about that? Yeah. Because these engineers that are out there doing their work are listening and, and they're a great source. I, I don't have numbers. I don't have a number, you know, on average, they bring in X number per year or something like that. I don't have any number like that, but they're a great source of information, things that are going well and things that are not going well within the customer. That's great. So I'm, I'm going to wrap with one final question. I really appreciate the time today. And the question, we're actually going to transition from services, business, and everything we've been talking about and call on some of your educational background, right? Okay. You, and I, you and I have been friends and we, we've talked for a while. And what are some things that you could see people do to be better prepared to benefit when they take a college class? Because I know you've taught at some really high-end institutions. You've taught at some larger public institutions. Right. And there, there's been some differences there. So some best practices maybe for people, you know, going back to school or coming out of school. Ah, good question. So let's, um, let's start with, let's start with someone who's just starting school. People that are starting school and I, I was one, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. So it's, it was a challenge. So the way I approached it, I don't know if you can do this today. You could do it back back then. Um, I took a major with the least amount of required credits that allowed me to dip my toe into so many different subjects that I could explore things that were outside of my major to see if I had interest there. That's that's one thing. Okay. Uh, I, I think a lot of students today don't really declare their major till their sophomore or even junior year sometimes because they're unsure. So things to take advantage of if you're going in brand new. Uh, oftentimes colleges have career services. Go in, talk to career services, see what kind of jobs that, that, that the companies are putting out there on their website that they're looking to hire, what kind of people, what kind of skill sets are they nice. um, What kind of experience do you have to have? Do you need an internship? Do you need just one, do you need two? What kind of work experience are they looking for? Do that kind of homework as a freshman to get a picture of what the market is asking for, and then you can guide your career toward reaching those goals. I was teaching a class, and in, in, we called it business planning, but it was really, it was career planning. And it, we had a, a, a spreadsheet that said, here's where I am today. Here's where I'd like to be at graduation. It's all about skill sets or like things like better communication, better writer. I, I have my LinkedIn profile, I have my, my, um, my resume built all those kinds of things, I, I learned these skill sets. And so, and then what are the steps I had to take to get there? And then you got very detailed with that. It wasn't just take an Excel class, it's have an Excel class finished by such and such a date. 
So that's for a person going in brand new. It's, it's almost like we've talked about roadmaps today. It's a roadmap for their four years. And that can always, I told them, there's always a living, breathing document. It changes as your interest changes, as I might take a class and go, wow, I had no idea this was this kind of interesting. And I changed my whole focus. So that's one. If you're going back to school, again, it's, you can go to the career services and, again, get a sense of what the marketplace is asking for. But also, just do your own homework on what jobs are out there, knowing what you want to do next if you know what you want to do next, but what jobs are out there? What are the requirements for those jobs in terms of skills, education, experience? Uh, maybe it's if it's a technical job, certifications, that sort of thing. And then put that roadmap together. And then when you start your college, go back to college, you're building your course structure around those, that set of objectives that you have to have in, in the two or four years it's going to take you to come out of college. Okay. That's... Uh, um, those are, I highly recommend internships. I highly recommend uh, reading business books. Get involved in, in um, if you can, in any kind of uh, blogs where you're following a particular company you might be interested in. Uh, follow them on LinkedIn. Follow a particular person you might be interested in. All those things to increase your knowledge of what's going on in, in the world around you that you intend to jump into when you finish that college. Nice. Yeah. So, well, that's, I think that's really good advice. And, you know, it's one of the things I think people are struggling with, right? And you hear so much people going to college and they come out and they can't find opportunities. But part of it is really starting to build the network. Yes. And when you're, when you're there. I forgot to mention that, Tim. That's absolutely critical. Start to build your network. Anybody you run across, reach out to them with a personalized request to, to uh, link with them. Um, that's, that is a very good point. But I think the other thing is a lot of people, when they start school, they just look at the courses that they're going to take and they don't look beyond what do I, where do I want to be at the end of this four years? And what else besides getting a degree am I going to need? And so you come out and I mean, be honest with you, I was a classic example. I was a history major. I came out and I had a history, a degree in history. I sent out a bunch of resumes, got a whole bunch of rejections. <laughs> I didn't want to be a teacher. So I didn't have the skill set to jump into business. Learn from that, go back, get a master's degree in business, and you're, it's a different story. But that's the thing. You've got to do a little bit forward thinking and start to, you, you've got to work at what you want when you get out. You have to start working at it right away. And I think if you do that, doesn't mean there's a guaranteed job at the end, but your chances of getting a job at the end are higher, especially if you start to get internships and build your network. Yeah, and, and it's funny. I hired a young lady at a company once, and I hired her. I was It was a sales organization, but I hired her to essentially, she had a finance background that I would never have. I mean, the depth of ability to audit and look at things at a micro level, and we had an accounts payable problem. So I hired her to come in and figure out what was going on. And I actually expected her to figure it out in the account itself. And that internship led to a full-time position because she actually figured out that it was a problem with our own finance department and not with the customer. They were paying us and we were misapplying funds. So <laughs> the, the, there I was with this nice young, you know, very bright 21, 22 year old woman who just came out of school thinking we were going to figure out 
what the customer was doing wrong. And we figured out something we were doing wrong. And yeah, a lot of people had egg on their face, but they also let me hire her full time and <laughs> kept her on for a couple of years before somebody stole her. So, <laughs> well, Mike, thank you again for the time, you know, and for our listeners, Mike's going to be back on. We're going to do at least two more sessions. We're going to talk a little bit about, like I talked before, about whether you're building a services business, like we did today. But the next time we're going to talk about, you know, maybe an underperforming or expanding a services business. And then we're also going to talk about, and we hinted at it today a little bit, the difference in sales approach. Because salespeople and how they sell physical goods, especially if that's what they're used to, versus those intangibles. It's different. So in the next, you know, six to 12 weeks, we'll have a couple more episodes there. Um, as always, thanks for listening. Again, go to timkubiak.com. This episode will be there with the show notes. Mike is actually going to do a um, written response on some of the main questions here. Um, we won't cover them all, but we'll cover six or seven of those main questions. We are going to build a guide that you can sign up for our newsletter and download the guide as part of that on you know, just some basic services assessment for yourself. So whether you're running a services business or looking to sell services, you know, there'll be a little bit of a guide there and be an online survey that you can take. And as always, like I said earlier, we're happy to talk to you. You can reach out to me personally at tim at timkubiak.com or you can go to the site, fill out the contact us form and say whether you want to hear from me or Mike and we'll get back in touch with you and happy to have that first conversation. Thanks again, Mike. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate it. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode. We put out fresh content every Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, tell your friends, and share on your own social media accounts. Want us to see what you have to say? It's a BYOB kind of party. Bring your own bow tie. So hashtag bring your own bow tie. Our listeners are important to us. After all, it's you we create this content for. With that in mind, we're doing a mailbag episode once a quarter. If you have suggestions, ideas, or questions you'd like answered, email us at mailbag at bowtiesandbusiness.com. This show is produced, edited, and researched by Courtney Kubiak with the help of her rescue dogs, Tequila Rose and Rooney.